Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Schwartz, are you there? I am here. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Excellent. Thank you very much for calling. Uh, Joanna Schwartz, author of the book Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. And that's the reason that you're calling me when I talk about this book. You're also a, a law professor at UCLA. I don't know, is there more about your background that people should know? <laughs> uh, well, I was a civil rights lawyer uh, in New York uh, about 20 years ago, and, and my work uh, they're doing civil rights cases is sort of what, what prompted me to become a law professor and do the research that I do and to write this book. I have a question for you right off the bat. What brings you from New York City, I imagine, to <laughs> UCLA? Are you just like, well, I can do the same work and it's, you know, the weather's better? No, uh, although that is, both of those things are true. Uh, okay. I, uh, I, my husband's work brought him to Los Angeles. So, okay. Um, it was it was not not a planned not sort of professionally planned on my end. Okay, so this <clears throat> is how we ended up doing this interview today. I have to t be honest with you. A couple weeks ago, I was listening to uh, uh, something. I don't even know what it was. An interview with an author of some book, and I went to the library. It sounded interesting. I get there, they don't have it, but I was checking. I was looking at the new books, and I see right in front of me shielded, and I had seen actually. A write-up of your book somewhere, I, like a review. I want to say it was like a slightly conservative-leaning outlet, but they had they had kind of liked the book, and so I was familiar. I was like, "Oh, I've seen this." I start, I get it. I come home, I start reading it, and my producer here can can attest to this. I had just I'd started your book the night before. The next day, I am driving to work. Now, your book it starts off you know, before we even get to the first chapter. You tell a story about a SWAT team kicking in the door of an old man's house and they were at the wrong house just the wrong, and I don't remember what state that was in mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. Georgia Georgia okay the 78 year old man uh police you know they, they the, the SWAT team is there get, just like in the in the reality shows Lazo they're getting ready for this 
takedown or whatever, and they're showing the the officers, here's what the house looks like that we're going to, here's the address, and when they get there, they go to the house. It, do, it doesn't look like the house that they just saw pictures of. It's right. not the right address. The house is next door, but they just go into the wrong house and kick this old man to the floor. And so I am driving to work the next day, and uh, I, I see a SWAT uh, armored vehicle in the front yard of my neighbor's house. This is oh, like a, a nice, uh, a pretty expensive house because these houses behind me, it's like a pretty nice neighborhood. And are you and thinking to yourself, they're supposed to be at my house? I'm thinking like, <laughs> God, man, this is what happens when you don't read your mail. You know, I guess they just <laughs> come after you. And I see this old man and he's he's out in his front yard and he's got his hands in the air and there must be at least a dozen SWAT team members pointing rifles at this guy. And I, I got to work and I, I told our producer, I was like, Spencer, you won't believe this. I'm reading this book and then today I see a SWAT team and I said, I'm telling you right now, what do you think this guy could have done that warranted a SWAT response. Do you think it was justified? Do you really think this guy, because when I think SWAT team as a kid, you think like, uh, you know, maybe serious drug kingpin or someone is holding hostages in their house. Right. <laughs> but but nowadays it's, you know, the SWAT team can find other ways to stay busy, it seems. It took me a little while to figure out what this guy had done, but it looks like the, it was just this old man and he had robbed a CVS. Uh, mm. The details of that are a little unclear, but we were talking about this and, and I feel like you could answer this question. It does seem like when we were younger, like in the 90s when I was a kid, if something like this had happened, I feel like a couple of uniformed police officers would have gone and knocked on his door and questioned him and then arrested him if they needed to. But maybe not. Maybe I'm looking back with rose-colored glasses. How did we get here? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that there's been there's been rises and falls in in police brutality and, and, you know, viewed from. Um, the early 20th century, uh, perhaps things are better than, than today than they, than they were back then. But you're also right that there has been this increase in the use of SWAT teams uh, to, to, you know, just to, far beyond anything that's, that's possibly necessary. And increases in SWAT teams, use of military equipment, and use of, you know, specialized teams like the Scorpion unit that we saw um, in Memphis that was uh, that killed Tyree Nichols. All of this, this hyper aggressive policing has been justified by, uh, you know, the need to fight crime by by claims about, um, you know, increased uh, increased crime and the need to be really aggressive in response to them. And then you end up with SWAT teams responding, as you say, to um, to, to to circumstances where a, a SWAT team really isn't required. Really, you know, anytime there's some sort of search, and then there's the the risk, the danger of people being grievously injured or killed. I mean, the person who I write about in the introduction to Shield and the person that you saw both survived those. Uh, SWAT team searches, but there's a lot of cases out there where people are not so lucky, where, you know, if an officer thought that a person was armed, um, even if they had, you know, the the right to have that gun, that can be justification to shoot and kill in those situations. And and so this is, this is a, a real danger and a real concern that we all should share uh, about the amount of power and discretion that the police have. I have a question. Do you think, and just when, when, when I hear these stories, and it reminds me of the documentary that they did on the uh, Baltimore police. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the name's... Uh, the Slow Hustle. Slow Hustle. The Slow Hustle. And how they made that specialized unit, and as you watch that, you're like, man, these guys, uh, 
they're they're the criminals. They act just like the criminals. And I go back and I think of that. I, I've been in jail a couple times, and I and I would always look over at the at, at the tables when I was there, and there were guards, and then there were guards who were playing spades with the inmates. <laughs> and I thought, okay, there's guards here, and then these guys. It appears to me were going to be with me either way. They just happened to have the uniform on and did it a different way. But they're slamming the spades down, you know, yelling Trump at me, and you know that's it, right? And it made me think, like, are we there? Because and this sounds crazy to me because I'm not a blame TV guy or blame video games guy, but all the SWAT TV shows that we all rooted for. Uh, the police shows that, to me, you know, we used to laugh about it in the late 80s, early 90s. Like, look at this racist crack hunt. And and I look at it now, and I'm like, it seems like we've taken that, and we rooted for that. We cheered Mm -hmm. for it on TV. They were, you know, Bad Boys, Bad Boys was the number one TV Mm -hmm. show forever. And then all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. we're like, whoa, uh, this came to our house. Yeah, you can't do it to me. Right, I thought we were just watching this, right? This thing that... You know, we all became quasi-racist and uh, and enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I definitely think that those cop shows help to romanticize really aggressive policing. And, and I remember soon after George Floyd was murdered, there was a decision announced to take cops off the air. I don't know if that's still true, but yeah. at the moment, I thought this is really important, um, you know, to, to, to stop romanticizing this in this way. And I want to say something about another point that you that you mentioned just there about how this this affects everyone. You know, police uh, abuse, arrests, um, assaults, killings do are disproportionately inflicted against black people, indigenous people, Latino people. But there's also so many people who are white, who are wealthy, who are um you know, who are not fitting the sort of image of victims of police misconduct. And part of the reason I wrote my book the way that it did, I did was to tell the stories of lots of different people to, to really drive home the point that you just made that this is not uh, a problem that only a sliver or segment of our society should be concerned with. We all should be concerned um, not only for the benefit of our society, but because this could be us. Yeah, and I think it's a really, it's a fine line that we have to walk because as, uh, you know, three white guys sitting here talking about this, we are not anti-cop. Uh, we are anti-bad cop and we're anti-cops not uh, being held accountable, which which we'll definitely mm-hmm. get to because that's really what your book is about. But I think yes. it is important to remind people that that I am not arguing at all that people of color are not disproportionately um, abused, whatever, assaulted by police or, t- or mistreated of by course. police. But the fact is, it also happens to a lot of white people, poor white people, wealthy white people. It happens all the time. And and in either instance, you know, there's not always a, a cell phone video of it to go viral. And I right. watch a lot of mm-hmm. these true crime shows. And, and I was just watching one the other night where this uh, this this couple in Oklahoma, they were they were missing. And they start telling the story about his 14 year old or no, 16 year old son had been shot by a sheriff's deputy. And when they mm-hmm. did the autopsy, they looked, and it turns out that the sheriff's deputy had shot him in the back with a shotgun. And it was basically like one of these deals where there was nothing they could do about it because it was a small town. And these are the stories that I think, you know, mm-hmm. and you make reference to in your book that are happening mm-hmm. really way too frequently. But mm-hmm. it takes something like 
a kind of a perfect storm of of a, a George Floyd video to get us motivated. And let's let's go back to that because obviously that video is what sparked a lot of um, we, you know, Black Lives Matter had already uh, uh, been around, but mm-hmm. the the George Floyd video went viral. We'd all been stuck at home because of COVID, and it it's it sort of sparked this movement. And that's when we started seeing all of these videos on our on our phones on our screens of police mistreating people. And there was a big push that said, "Hey, we need reform." And there was some disagreement about what that reform should look like, and some of the mm-hmm. you know terms that we should use, like defund the police. No, we don't want to defund the police. We just want to be able to hold them accountable. But mm-hmm. we've kind of lost some of that momentum, which you make reference to in the book. And it, it does suck because it feels like we were starting to make some progress. And now we've kind of started to sputter out a little bit, haven't we? Well, I, yes and no. I think that, that there was this big push. Um, you're absolutely right. And I do think that there has been a lot of effort to tamp it down, you know, particularly in the legal accountability space. You know, I've, I've done a lot of research about this legal protection called qualified immunity um, that, in my view, should go away. And I have a lot of research to support that view. And police union uh, folks and local government folks have been so successful in uh, pushing back against those kinds of reforms, making what I believe are just false claims about uh, the horrors that would that would happen if um, if, you know, if there was more accountability. So Basically, if we got rid of qualified immunity, which I think we all heard qualified immunity over and over and over again. Uh, a lot of us, maybe for the first times during those protests. And some of us yeah. think we we knew it was bad. We're like, qualified immunity has got to go, man. It's it's somehow protecting <laughs> the police. But can you explain? Because I think you do a good job of explaining it in your book. I did, I'll be honest. I did not know the rules about the court saying, you know, basically, there has to be a precedent that this has happened in the past. Uh, yeah. almost exactly. Can you explain that? Yeah, and it's very hard to understand, even as, you know, so many people talk, use that phrase, which is part of the reason I wrote the book. Qualified immunity has a, has a long history, but the, the short version is um, to, the Supreme Court created qualified immunity in 1967. And when they did, they described it as this good faith defense. But they've strengthened it repeatedly over the years so that today uh, an officer can act in bad faith and still get qualified immunity, even if they violated the Constitution, so long as they have the good luck to have violated someone's constitutional rights in a way that a prior court has not precisely held unconstitutional. Someone else accountable for, basically. If you didn't do the wait, exact wait, wait, same wait, thing Wait, hold on a second. Explain that to me a little yeah. bit. I'm dumb. Slow it down. It's I didn't go to UCLA. I have a GED. I'm not, uh, I can't figure that out. Okay, well, let me tell you about the case of Alexander Baxter. Okay. Alexander Baxter burgled a home, um, and then uh, then the police were called. He uh, said, "You know, fine, <laughs> I give up." He sat down, put his hands in the air in surrender, and the police, while he was had surrendered, after he had surrendered, released their police dog on him, and that dog. Um, bit him under the arm and really maimed him. He brought a lawsuit against the officers. The officers said, we're entitled to qualified immunity because the law is not clearly established that what we did was wrong. The court agreed. Now, the court recognized it is clear 
in Supreme Court law and all other, you know, and lower courts as well, that you cannot use force against someone who has surrendered because they're not a threat. That wasn't enough to clearly establish the law. There was also a case, a prior case from that same court that had said it was unconstitutional to release a police dog on a person who had surrendered by lying down. The court said that wasn't enough because of the factual distinctions between the case where the court had previously held it was unconstitutional to release a a dog on a person who'd surrendered by lying down and Alexander Baxter's case where he had surrendered by sitting and putting his hands in the air. Wow. So see, Laz, if he had laid down, then they would have said, okay, there's already precedent for this. Yes, you can hold these officers accountable. But because the other case was a little different, this is qualified immunity. This falls under qualified immunity. And I'll give you one more example. In Fresno, California, an, an officer doing a search warrant stole a quarter of a million dollars in cash and rare coins during the search. Uh, the guy whose money was stolen sued. Those officers got qualified immunity because even though everyone should know that it is unlawful to steal, <laughs> it wasn't clearly established by prior similar court cases that what this officer did was wrong. And so that means the case is dismissed and there's no consequences for that officer and the person whose money was stolen ends up <laughs> out a quarter of a million dollars. And I'm, that's all Denzel Washington training day. King Kong ain't got <laughs> shit on me, motherfucker. Like, right. That is, I mean, it sounds like that, right? It sounds like training day stuff. It, it, it does. I mean, Justice Sotomayor on the Supreme Court said qualified immunity sends the message that police can shoot first and think later. And I think that that's a really... Uh, good way of of stating it it really sends the message these cases these decisions that there won't be consequences for officers who violate the law again we're talking to joanna schwartz uh, author of the book shielded how the police became untouchable and can can you tell us can you explain also to some dumb people like us what these um reasons are that the courts have said well you know we should have qualified immunity not only that but we should strengthen it because if we don't this might happen what are their worries yeah, there, these worries have been described for decades. I mean, they're, they're in the conversation right now about qualified immunity. They were in the conversation about qualified immunity back in the 60s when it first was created. And the concerns are essentially that if it's easier to sue, that officers will, that the courthouses will overflow with frivolous lawsuits, that officers will be bankrupted for good faith mistakes that they make doing their job, that no one will agree to be a police officer if they're threatened with this, and that then chaos will reign. Because right, everybody's be out to make a buck. Well, that's interesting. I, I guess my, my, I mean, maybe it's an obvious question, or maybe it's not, but do we do that in any other professions? Like, you can sue a doctor, and doctors still <laughs> want to be doctors. But if they make mistakes, you can get sued and lose your job. And I mean, there are consequences for taking the wrong leg. Well, that is absolutely true. Uh, Although I would say some of these same arguments have been made, you know, in favor of tort reform and making it harder to sue doctors as well. But part of the point that I make, and this is based on a decade of research, is that those fears don't they they don't bear out. And and I'll, I'll give you two reasons why. 
there's actually three reasons why, but one is that officers rarely, virtually never pay anything from settlements and judgments entered against them. And it's not because of qualified immunity. It's because states and local governments have what are called indemnification agreements, which are agreements saying that an officer, when they're sued, gets a lawyer paid for by the city and gets any settlement or judgment paid on their behalf. It's part of by their, the city, by our taxpayers, by the city, by the taxpayers or by their insurance company. But that has nothing to do with qualified immunity. And so the idea that officers will be bankrupted without qualified immunity is, is just demonstrably, clearly false. Because they're separate because issues completely. Well, let me ask you this, just completely. to play devil's advocate for a second, because I don't yeah. understand it so much. Are they saying that the police officer individually would be bankrupt? And you're saying that's not the case, but would their argument be the police department as a whole would be bankrupt? Well, the claim is that the officers individually will be bankrupt. And if you read, uh, you know, there was just a, a, an op-ed from a, from a union representative in San Diego making the claim, yes, officers would be bankrupted. You can see Tucker Carlson has talked about officers um, being bankrupted and, and, and many others. There's also this concern, as you say, okay, well, if it's not officers, then, then the police department's going to be bankrupted. I've done research about that also. And what I found is the money to pay settlements and judgments very rarely impacts the police department's budget either. Uh, instead, it comes from general funds. And what I've talked about in the book is that as a, as a practical reality, where that money ends up coming from, uh, from pockets of the budget uh, that are meant to help the, the most marginalized, the least politically powerful. I talk in the book about a Chicago uh, city lawyer who said, you know, when police settlements and judgments go up in this city, lead paint testing goes, goes down. down. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, what I've also found is that as much as we talk about how big the settlements and judgments are in these cases, in most cities, it's less than 1% of the city's overall budget. So um, there are stories of small towns that um, have, where there's a big lawsuit that's had a, a big impact, but usually it's sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. They have insurance, they've been sued a bunch of times, and the insurance company says, we don't want to insure you anymore. And so the city says, all right, well, we'll just take care of any future lawsuit payment ourselves. And then they get sued again. Okay, so not not to stretch out, uh, and I don't know, you know, if you know this, but I, I'm guessing, uh, what other professions is there qualified immunity? Oh, none. I mean, it, okay. well, it, 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 it's, I was guessing it you were going to say that, but I didn't know for sure. <laughs> it's created. It was created by the Supreme Court um, to. It, it's not just police, I should say. I mean, it's it's government employees, with the exception of judges and prosecutors and legislators who get absolute immunity, meaning they can't be sued for anything, uh, which is, you know, perhaps the subject for a, a different yeah. conversation. Well, I mean, that's infuriating too, it right? Is. <laughs> it is. I mean, maybe it even is. more so because now we've gotten into this point where we've talked about before, and I, and I get it, it's a conversation for another day, but now we have cops busting into people's houses, arresting them in the wrong house, and prosecutors not worried about finding the truth, but but winning a case. 
Like, it's almost like a sporting event now. It's like, hey, a defense attorney, I understand. Your job is to give the best defense possible to your client, period. But as a prosecutor, your job should be to find the truth. Mm-hmm. And at the end of this, I mean, there are so many cases now, particularly with more um, DNA testing and more sophisticated testing, people who have been in prison for decades uh, who were wrongfully convicted. And if you can't bring the case against the prosecutor, just, you know, this is a person who has spent 20, 30 years of their lives locked up for something they didn't do. Right. And if there's not a remedy in the court, then they're bearing the costs of that themselves. Right, right. And that's and another... That yeah, go ahead. So, well, I was Sorry. just going to say that's another thing that you talk about in the book that makes it harder to sue uh, the, the police department or a police officer because, uh, you know, even if it's an obvious... Uh, I don't know, a legal act or unconstitutional act on the police department's behalf. Um, the prosecutors, they don't want to go against the cops because they have to work with these cops to get mm-hmm. evidence to close cases and lock people mm-hmm. up and get those numbers that you're talking about, Lazo. Mm-hmm. So they don't want to go after a, a cop because they kind of are cops. And I know that's sort of obvious, but it 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 you talk in the book about that. And then also beyond that, it's it's. Even if you just say, well, you only got a 1% chance when you go to uh, sue a, a police department, okay? But some of the things I had not thought about, which you discuss, is finding a lawyer that's willing to take mm-hmm. the case is not an easy task, especially if you live in a rural area. Yeah, and, you know, that also might seem surprising to listeners because it seems like there's way more lawyers than we could possibly, it surprised we me, could possibly honestly. use. Yeah. But in parts of the country, um, you know, outside of the big cities, it can be very hard to find a lawyer who knows anything about civil rights litigation. It's a complicated area of law. Lawyers aren't paid unless they win these cases, and then they're paid a percentage. And if you think about something like qualified immunity, they have to study up, understand how it works, and then, and then when they bring a case, they have to be prepared to sift through hundreds of cases to try to find one that has similar enough facts. Right. And let me ask you this, and yeah. if they do take that case, uh, win or lose, uh, and then they come in later as a defense attorney, I mean, they've got a couple chips against them, right? <laughs> right. Well, that Aren't you the guy who sued us for $20 million and now you're going to defend this guy for DUI? No, I'm not really listening to your argument. No, maybe it, that, that, may be, that may very well be the case. And certainly in some parts of the country, taking these civil rights cases um, you know, is is not worth it for, right. for all of these reasons. They could just take a slip and fall case. You know, they could take a medical malpractice case, and they and they wouldn't have to deal with these extra right. costs and risks. And, and the reason that police don't have total immunity, like prosecutors do, is because the courts have said over and over again, essentially, you know, the 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 risk or the threat of being sued should help these departments uh, to behave because. For one, they would want to dismiss officers who don't behave because they're a liability. They want to make sure that they train officers to do the right thing. And that hasn't really been the case because the money isn't really coming from the department or the police officer, right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And this, the police departments don't gather and analyze information from these suits, which is sort of how I began thinking about all of this when I was practicing in New York City. And I'd ask officers, how often have you been sued? And they'd say, I don't know. And they didn't know what had happened in the case. They didn't know how much money had been paid. And the supervisors didn't know. 
how often the people they were supervising had been sued and what those claims were. Because so, let me ask you real quick, because yeah. because they because they just settled and that money came from the people or because it never got to court? No, because it settled. Yep. The city's attorney paid for it or, or the city's attorney defended it and the money came from the central budget. And and there was no effort to look at these cases and think, boy, Officer Jones has been sued 10 times for punching people in the head. Right. Should we should we take a look at what Officer Jones training looks like and right. what he's actually doing out there? Um, if you were sued, if I was sued, if I had a company and my employees were sued, I would want to pay attention because I wouldn't want to get sued again because I wouldn't want those right. costs. But yes, they, they're. I've been sued a couple times here, and yeah, uh, we, you know, we, they, we yeah. should we should disclose that we're still here. Um, we're still here. We have been sued a couple times, but they, you know, we we did do some training. Yes, there was some extra training, and I feel like our behavior changed temporarily at least. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, we've got this argument that if we get rid of qualified immunity, that people saying, well, it's just going to fill the courts with frivolous lawsuits. And meanwhile, you also have courts over the course of, you know, a hundred years or more saying these types of lawsuits should help police behave because it should, it should scare them. It hasn't. So you'd think that they would realize maybe we need to do something about qualified immunity, but they're not. So what do we do? What do we change to remedy this so that if I get beat up by a cop who comes into the wrong house... I don't feel like, well, I'm just going to have to live with this because there's no way I could ever sue this guy. Well, and uh, part two of that co- of that question, it, uh, a little bit, is what does the why does the Supreme Court want this? Right. Like, what is their end game where they're like, no, we're going to continue to give it to you? Besides just some ideology that you obviously are proving wrong over and over again, and I don't think anybody on the Supreme Court is, you know, legally illiterate. They understand it. So what do they gain by it? What do we do to change it? And why would the Supreme Court rule the way that it does? Well, I do think that that the court and, and a lot of defenders of the status quo are afraid of what would happen if there's a change. And part of that, as I said, you know, is because there has been these very frightening stories told of what would happen if we made it easier to sue. And faced with those frightening stories and essentially claims that that police wouldn't do their jobs anymore um, and there wouldn't be safety. I mean, law and order, safety and, and, and police interests uh, are incredibly powerful, um, in part because of the danger of that's that's expressed about what would happen um, if those things uh, you know, if, if those protections were compromised. So I can't get into the mindset of the Supreme Court sure. justices, but I do think that that plays a role both in the Supreme Court's reluctance to, to make any shifts in Congress's, you know, failure to pass um, federal police reforms. It does give me more faith and hope for the state and local government efforts, um, although Federal efforts to get rid of qualified immunity have failed. There have been successes in Colorado, in New Mexico, in New York City to pass laws that allow people to sue under state law without qualified immunity. And no surprise to me, the sky hasn't fallen in any of those places. And, um, you know, perhaps those successes will lead um, other states to, to do this kind of thing. And then there's a lot that can happen in local governments. There are cities across the country that are limiting um, officers' involvement in responses to people having mental health crises. Just getting getting police out of those um, response teams altogether. 
There are efforts around the country to have officers stop doing basic traffic stops, um, both of which, you know, lead regularly to police uh, hurting or, or killing people. So I think that's another, a whole other, before we even talk about accountability at the end, after something terrible has happened, there's, there's important efforts to just rethink what police are doing and how they're spending their time. It, in fact, it's sort of a version of defund, but it's a version of defund that law enforcement groups are behind, too, because they don't want to be responding to people who are exactly. They didn't sign up. They didn't sign up. For right. this. That's I, not what they were excited to do. We've talked yeah. about it before. There was a uh, documentary about uh, Minnesota high school football team and uh, you know, part of the big twist is that the uh, the coaches were cops, mm-hmm. and you know it's a pretty interesting story. But you know, he's, you know, there's some barber shop talk, and uh, and, mm-hmm. and you know, one of the big things that they went through with councilmen and cops arguing back and forth was the defund the police. Mm-hmm. And it's and, and maybe you know you have a take on this, but as soon as I heard that word defund, I thought we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. nobody wants that. Right. Mm-hmm. And you found it in the communities uh, um, where, you know, people were being uh, abused by police officers saying, no, 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 we need if we don't have police officers, we're going to be in trouble. We don't want to defund the police. And it almost yeah. to me was like if they if we would have changed the word to refund or something where you're like, hey, if there's a domestic dispute, yes, a police officer will go. They will stand back. But. In that police officer call will be social workers and yeah. a psychiatrist or whatever, people who are trained to deal with these situations. Because, like we said, we don't hate cops. My uncle was a cop, but he used to tell me all the time, like, you know, there's some sort of dispute about legal orders in custody, mm-hmm. and they're calling me. I, I don't know what your judge said about that. <laughs> right. So what, he's like, you know, what are right. my options? I, I guess I just give the kid to the mom. Like, I don't know, you know. And so yeah. and, and he used to tell me that all the time. Like they call me for stuff that I'm just not qualified to handle and I don't want to do it. And he ended up becoming, you know, a homicide detective and was like, all right, mm-hmm. I get this. Right. Like, I, I know what I'm doing. But he was like, when I'm a street cop, they call me for stuff that, you know, I, I don't know. Doesn't seem like cop stuff. Shouldn't right. be Cop stuff. Oh, and and cops, I agree with you. You know, I, I'm this this book and my focus is 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 more focused on on what happens when bad when there are bad cops who do bad things, and there is a you know what's the remedy for people whose rights have been violated. My point isn't to say all cops are bad, and right. and you know, but but really, I I do think that perhaps the defund language, you know, it. To my view, it put the emphasis on the wrong part yes. of it, because even de- you know, defund folks are really saying, let's fund alternatives. Let's right. Fund that was my thing when they were ways. saying it. I'm like, you guys are saying all the right things, but all people are hearing in today's world of TikTok and everything else is yeah. defund the police. And it gives Tucker Carlson, all he has to say is, uh, you know, the governor, the you know, he wants to defund the police, get rid of police. That's what he said. And it's like that language kills it us. It hurt. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I do think that underneath the language of defund, there is a lot of place for agreement. Yes. I actually think that's true about qualified immunity, too. If you get past the, the sort of talking points 
I've been on, you know, legislative hearing panels and and conversations where it's supposed to be me against the, you know, people who are um, pro-qualified immunity. And they also agree. They think there should be probably more protections for police than I do. But they agree that whether someone is able to sue or not shouldn't turn on the chance that there's a prior court decision with virtually identical facts. They don't. They don't agree with that either. And so I, I think, yes, getting past the TikTok culture or the snap, you know, 270 character right. statements about people's positions can actually get us toward a lot more agreement than it currently seems like there right. is. Right. But we got to be snappier with that logo, with that, with that, those yeah, words, with that words. sentences, because yes. it killed like and I, I, conservatives are good at it. You know, yeah. they call it a death tax. Like, well, nobody's going to tax me when I'm dead. And you're like, well, that's a good word. I can't fight it. Like, as many, that, all they say over and over again is, oh, the liberals want to tax you when you die. They want to tax you when you die. Well, that's not it. But you use that word. It's really good, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I've, you know, there's a, there's a group at NYU called the Policing Project that's really interested in this. And they talk about reimagining public safety. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, you know, that's more in the right direction. Much better. It's still not right. as snappy. It's not as snappy as, as you know, it, you know. As right. It, Restru- I heard restructure example. later after defund was already out of the bag, you know, restructure. I'm like, yeah. well, I wish you would have led with that, you know, because I might be, uh, you know, you and I might not agree completely because I can sort of see the idea of if you sue a police officer, the department, if there is any type of uh, financial settlement, that the department, someone else other than the actual officer, should maybe pay it. Now, if there's criminal stuff and you got to go to jail, you got to go to jail. If you broke the law, you murdered someone, you beat someone up, and and that's what you're being, uh, you know, uh, sued for. Then that, then that's a different matter. But mm-hmm. it's got to be. We got to meet somewhere in the middle where, when that money comes out of whatever coffers it comes out of, that whoever's mm-hmm. in charge of that police department. Uh, whether it's the 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 chief or the mayor or whomever that they say this is um this is reason for us to make sure that we mm-hmm. are doing proper training that that officer is not coming back right. we don't want that officer working here anymore sure uh, he or she did not have to pay out of pocket fifty thousand dollars because I understand when people go to work for companies and they can have that protection uh, you know afforded to them like hey I you mm-hmm. didn't tell me I couldn't do this I was doing this or whatever. Mm-hmm. That sometimes, you know, like at this company, uh, if, if you get sued in this business, a lot of times the broadcaster or whatever will have to be the one who pays that mm-hmm. that fine. So I kind of understand that logic. But whatever we do, it's got to be enough to deter this bad behavior, whether from the top mm-hmm. or from the bottom. Oh, I agree with you 100 percent. I actually am not. There are some people who say officers should pay everything in these cases. I, I don't agree with that. I, I think that. um that first of all, I don't think most people whose rights have been violated would get paid because right. some of these settlements and judgments are way too big. Here's a here's and I, and I also agree that, though, that when a city pays, that should be incentive or reason to look at what happened and try to do something different. Um, Colorado's bill is really interesting, I think, in this way. So what Colorado did is say when a person sues um, and is successful, this the city will pay. But if the city finds that the officer acted in bad faith, the city can be required, the city can require the officer to contribute up to $25,000 or up to 5% of the settlement. Um, And if the officer says, proves that they don't have the money to do that, then the whole payment will come from the city. But it's a way of at least creating a little financial sting for yeah. an officer in the case where the city concludes 
that it really was the officer, um, you know, and not the not the department that that really should be at fault. All right. Well, let me raise my protest sign here, because to me, that doesn't sound good enough. Like <laughs> to, to me, you know, as I've been saying this whole time, like I'm not anti-police, but I am anti-police poor behavior. Mm-hmm. And if you do something that violates someone's civil rights as a police officer and you use your power to do that, I'm not okay with you just getting a fine, no matter how much mm-hmm. it is. You can't work there anymore. That's well, not maybe, it. That, that, yeah. You know, you can get another job and you should be held accountable like anybody else would mm-hmm. uh, if it's a, uh, an assault charge or anything else. It's I'm criminal. not saying yeah. you have to be charged higher than someone mm-hmm. else, although I'm sure some people would argue that because of their position of power. I'm not sure I buy that, but you certainly don't get to be a cop anymore. Right. Well, and that's, that brings up a whole other set of laws that are out there called decertification laws um, around the country that limit, you know, when there's been a finding of wrongdoing, limiting whether that limiting that officer's ability to be a police officer again. And I think that a lot of people would say that the current laws that are on the books are not strong enough, that there's there's officers who, you know, don't qualify for getting decertified, who should not be uh, you know, should not have a badge and a gun, but I, you know, I think that that's another area too. And these are, these are, you know, there's steps forward and then, you know, and and I celebrate when, when there are reforms like the one in Colorado or, you know, these decertification laws. And then I also think that they should be better and stronger than they are. We are talking to Joanna Schwartz, uh, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, available uh, wherever you read books, right? Uh, JoannaSchwartz.net. Uh, so let me ask you this. We have, I mean, we still have a couple of questions if you, if you have time. Oh, yeah. One, the um, world. one uh, I've always thought this. How is one way to stop? Okay, so I get the qualified immunity. That's a problem. And I have two questions, but I'll, I'll just separate them. The first one is, do we need qualified immunity because we don't train police officers enough? Meaning if we, and I know this sounds crazy and it sounds crazy to a lot of my liberal leftist friends and and I, and I'm one of them and they're always like, just shut up. But if we paid them more and made them be more qualified then, uh, you know, a criminal criminology degree or and then a 12 week uh, police course or whatever it is. If we made them, you know, be have psychology and, you know, all these social work and all these other classes and all these things. And we made them uh, uh, be more qualified for the position and then paid them more to do that. Would we see less of this behavior? It only makes sense to me. Yeah, I think that that would take us at least to a to a degree, uh, you know, that that could address some of these issues. And, you know, police in the U.S. uh, get far less training, you know, than in than in other parts of the world where where it's viewed as um, something where you you need more more training. Right. Um, So I do think that that's part of it. But I do also think that that. Part of it is what we task police with doing. You know, we've, right. we've seen stories about, you know, stop and frisk and and the, the idea that police need to 
have a certain number of stops. I mean, the, the, the whole idea that police officers are given quotas or goals about how many people they stop, how right. many people they search, it just sets up a, an expectation that officers are going to be in these situations where they can use force, can right. violate people's rights. So I think training gets us, gets us somewhere, but I really think that, that a lot of these issues are more in the system level of what we, what we tell police officers that they're supposed to be doing. Right. Yeah. And these quotas that we've heard about since we were kids, you know, he's like, that can't be true. Uh, is it true? I don't know. But I mean, it is true, right? There are quotas. Departments well, do have certain quotas. My uncle would say, uh, if he was on this with us now, and I, you know, it's a focus group of one. So, you know, what the hell do I know? But he would say, you know, when he was a city cop in Detroit, no, there's no quota. But if I don't write a ticket, they're like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. what are you doing all day? Like, it looks bad. Like, I got to write tickets. There's no, like, you have to write seven a day. But if I come in at the end of the month and I haven't written any because I haven't seen anybody do anything, I better start finding people doing something. Yeah. Well, and there's be- there's definitely been, I mean, there's a, there's a lawsuit that's been brought by um, cops in New York City that are talking, that are really challenging the quota system that the NYPD has said that it doesn't have. Um, but these officers have experienced it. Um, and, and yes, it may not be that there's a memo that says 30 arrests this right. week, but there's the feedback of <laughs> yeah, you're not doing your job doing out there. Yeah, right. exactly. in, in your book, you know, each one of these stories, it's so hard to read because I know something bad's about to happen. I get this very claustrophobic feeling and, and you just think, you know, you're being your rights are being violated by someone that's very hard to hold accountable. And that's just a scary thought, especially in America. We're all about liberty and freedom and basically right. holding people accountable. And this is the one instance where, you know, these cops come in. You tell a story about a guy who uh, I forget his name. He's in his 50s. Um, he'd never been in trouble with the law, had a family. I think his kids lived uh, or maybe had family members that lived next door. But he called the police because I believe his daughter was in a fight with the neighbor mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you tell mm-hmm. the story when the police come into the house. Now, he's the one who called the cops. Again, he's mm-hmm. never been in trouble. When the police come into the house, they beat the holy hell out of this guy. And my mm-hmm. question is, and obviously this is not a unique story, unfortunately, but it's like, what? What leads these police officers to think this is okay? Is it overall, is fear the biggest thing? Are they scared? They're scared they're going to get shot. They're scared something's going to go wrong. And so they're just way too reactive out out of fear. Or is it because they know they can and they know that they're untouchable? Well, that really is the $64 billion question, isn't it? I mean, I think that that I, I can't get into the psychological mindset but i think all those things you know must come into play i mean there is a sense that there is not accountability in these cases i think there is uh you know there is research that has shown that officers are more likely to use force when they haven't gotten enough sleep (laughs) you know they haven't um they're doing you know they're moonlighting doing other kinds of work and and also when they have in the recent past been on a domestic violence call or another, you know, concerning call. So I think there is simply just a a sense that officers adrenaline, you know, is, is going uh, a little haywire in these situations in part because, you know, because of what their lives are like in that case, you just mentioned, I don't know what was going on in these officers minds. The one fact about that case that, that I always think about is, 
and I write about in the book, they, they beat him up actually out. They go into his house and then they tell him to come out. He comes out. He's wearing his socks. He's told them that you don't, he doesn't need them around anymore. But as he's leaving the house, the, um, he has a, a, a screen door and the sort of shock on it doesn't work. So the door kind of makes a slamming sound when he opens and then the door shuts. Right. And I wonder whether that was just, they were like, ah, oh, this guy's, you know, being difficult. <laughs> right. And then just wailed on him. Okay. Cause you know, uh, as not- I was reading that, I was like, did, are they, were they going to try and say that they thought they heard a gunshot, but it makes more sense as you're, you know, when you realize that they're out in the front yard and they know he doesn't have a gun that, that maybe they just thought, hey, this guy's being, you know, a dick. And there's no reason. Because I can imagine maybe he'd said, like, hey, I don't need you. The fight ended. I called you earlier. Sorry, I'm the one that called the police. And we don't know yeah. exactly what that conversation looked like. But when that door slammed, maybe they're just like, you know what, motherfucker? You you know, you should be very, right. very kind to us and very careful with us because we're cops. It's, and if you look at, for example, the video of Tyree Nichols, you know, I don't, I don't know if you have the stomach to, to watch yeah. that, that video, but after they have beaten this man to, to what eventually is his death, they are laughing yeah. and they are saying, whew, I'm winded. Oh, my knee hurts from, you know, right. from kicking this guy. They are, they, are, you can, it, it's as though they, they, they have the kind of adrenaline that you'd imagine after you'd run a sprint or something, right. you know, it's won a football game. Won a football game. And they were, in fact, running, some of those officers running after him for a while. And so then they caught him and then they beat him to death. Yeah. And so, you know, I do think that some of this, I mean, some of it is sure there are there are some just truly evil sociopath cops out there that there are. And there are and there are some situations also where cops, you know, are you know are just simply agitated uh you know by the circumstances and both and and somewhere they're scared as you said i mean where cops are scared you see you know the cop who killed philando castile you know there was no danger to him right at all and um so he he, you know it's, it's difficult to diagnose yeah, and we've right. seen some of these stories, or at least uh, I've I've heard some stuff about some different departments trying. There was a department in Florida that said they brought in a new police chief and said, you know, we've got way too many instances of police using force when they shouldn't. So they said, you know what, we're going to hire people who have basically been in physical fights before. Well, let's look for people who are boxers. Let's look for people who are mixed martial artists. Right. Let's look for people who are bouncers at nightclubs, people mm. who have been in physical altercations. And, you know, it, whether or not the story was true, but they, they said that uh, it had an impact almost immediately because these police were not afraid when they got somewhere uh, of being swung at, basically. And so their first instinct wasn't always grabbing that gun because we've seen a lot of right. videos where the cop grabs that gun and you know that cop is really overly scared. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't be, but more scared than a lot of other officers might be in that same situation. Like, whoa, Mm -hmm. you are really amped up and really scared right now. The woman Mm -hmm. who pulled what she thought was a taser. So, you know, she said she thought it was a taser and pulled her gun. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I do think, I don't know how you how you go about trying to do that uh, throughout the entire country. But there, there is something to that, I think. I mean, it just makes logical sense to me that if you've been in a physical altercation, you've been in a few fights, you're not mm-hmm. as scared. Well, as, it's a simple math. Like when we talk about politicians, for the most part, excluding John McCain, the ones who really want to go to war are the ones who have never been exactly, there. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, like it's like Dick Cheney and John. Everybody wants to invade countries. Except for on the left and the right. Except for, you know, John Kerry was there. And like, it sucks. I don't want to do this. No war. Yeah. Right? 
there's a psychologist who's done this kind of research and, you know, had officers fill out this, you know, long questionnaire and then put them in a simulated situation where there's they can see on a screen a guy who's, you know, got a, a drunk guy who's got a pipe, you know, and and some of the officers talk the guy down and other officers immediately draw their weapon and shoot. And both are within policy because the because the guy had a, a weapon and you could say he was a threat. But obviously we want more cops who are going to do the talking down instead of the shooting. And what this um, psychologist, his name is Rich, uh, Phil Goff, he found that there's this thing called uh, masculinity threat. And it's essentially cops that are um, – you know, are not are not secure in. Their I know all about it. I face it every day. Every day. <laughs> Who respond with the sh- with the shooting? And to your to your point about the the woman with the taser, what when when I've been when I've heard him answer questions, someone asked, "Can women have masculinity threat?" And he said, "Yes, um, often pe- people, men or women, who are small, <laughs> smaller, right, sure, of course, and they're surrounded um, by these tough guys." Correct. Correct. So there is a way, actually, to test for this because he's found, you know, a set of questions that could be asked that connect with this idea. Right. I mean, that that only makes sense. And again, I'm not a psychologist, but if you just kind of think about it, you're like, if I went to the car and that guy got out of the car and I look at him and I size him up and I'm like, that guy could kick my ass. I'm a little bit more nervous than I walk to the car and I'm like, if this guy gets out of the car, I can whoop his ass. Like, that's just Mm -hmm. normal I mean, that's how we live our lives, right? Like in any situation uh, where we're like, hey, this could be a little dangerous, we we size that up. The guy to the right mm-hmm. to me could really kick my ass. The guy to the left of me, I got, I'm not worried about. We do that when mm-hmm. we walk into, you know, country bars, for God's sakes, right? <laughs> especially, yeah. You and me especially. And, and part of what he found also was this was not about the race of the officer. You know, he what he found was, he said, you know, I, I questioned officers who said very explicitly they were they were racist. They didn't like black people. And Phil Goff is black. And yet, if they don't have this masculinity threat, they're not they're not likely to shoot. So, you know, there's there's this is this is about sort of uh, psychology mentality, not not it doesn't seem from his research about race. All right. So now two more questions for you. Uh, and, and maybe more, but these two I, I've been thinking about. One, it's like this attitude that we have with the police, the things we see on TV, the way that, you know, even if we don't know what qualified immunity is, although you've taught us today, uh, <laughs> even if we don't know what that is, we know that, you know, uh, for the most part, police can just grab a guy out of his car and beat his ass, right? And that just happens, and unless there's a George Floyd moment, you're not getting any justice, right? There's not going to be any. But does that then, you know, two questions. The other thing when I think about qualified immunity is um, the gun companies Mm. not being able to be sued. So now we kind of have this mentality. There's, you know, gun companies can't be sued. The manufacturers of guns can't be sued. The police can't be sued. We're kind of like buying into this, like, you know, this it's okay to do these things. And then we see it permeate into civilians uh you know uh in florida with the stand your ground stuff and mm-hmm. you know these people like you know nobody thought that you know a security guard could chase a black teen down the street 
lose a fist fight and then shoot them and be like, yeah, that's okay. Mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. didn't think that was the case until it happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a very scary state of affairs. And, you know, it sort of suggests that everyone's on their own and that, you know, the, the, the government is not going to is not going to protect us. And so people, you know, need to take things into their own hands, which then leads to more brutality. You know, the, the way in which the right to sue began in the first place the way in which people could sue for constitutional violations, this is this is 150 years old following the Civil War when newly uh, newly freed, formerly enslaved people were being tortured and killed by white vigilante mobs. And Congress said, we can't just let this continue to happen. We can't just let, um, you know, people get killed and tortured and have local governments say this isn't our problem, you know, and, and or participate in the violence themselves. We need to have a federal government response. We need to be protecting people's rights. And is this the section that, 1983 that you talk correct, about? Correct. Okay. Exactly. But, it, but what you're talking about, I think, is sort of a chipping away of that. You know, this idea that the federal government who that has played an important role in protecting people's rights is now saying we don't want to be in the business of that. <laughs> you you, right. you you guys do it yourselves. Um, and then we empower people to uh, shoot a black teenager when he knocks on your front door be at the wrong house. Yeah. Right. right. I mean well, that happened right here, and we empower yeah. them because now it's like it's become this kind of uh, culture where yeah 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 it's okay to do that. Shoot the cops don't get in trouble if they do it. I'll do it too. I was threatened. Right. And then the court's like, yeah, sounds good to me. Well, and, and this is also where, gun, you know, uh, Second Amendment rights to, to own uh, guns and to sort of take them anywhere and police power come into interesting play right. also because police have the authority. They do not violate the Constitution if they shoot you and kill you and have a what they call an objectively reasonable belief that you were a threat. So and then at the same time, there's laws around that say you can you get open carry. Right. So it's so, so bizarre. basically you have the right to carry a gun around. But then a police officer has the right to shoot you for it. you. Yeah. Right. We heard yeah. that story of uh, the cops again going into the wrong house. Uh, I don't remember it was a couple of years ago. The cops go into the wrong house. You know, they say they yelled police, but the guy goes upstairs, gets a gun and yeah. fires at him, and he's in trouble. I'm like, why is he in trouble? You went to the wrong house. You busted in. You said you yelled police, but he doesn't know if you're really the police. He hasn't anything wrong. He's allowed to have a gun. And from what I understand, if you break into my house, I can shoot you. I don't have to ask questions. So why is he in trouble? Yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely right. And I tell uh, one, uh, one more of those stories in the, in the book. And, and important to note, this is not about qualified immunity. This is about whether the Constitution has been violated. So, you know, in order to bring these claims, you first have to show that your constitutional rights were violated. Then you have to get past qualified immunity. But these courts are saying there's no constitutional violation when a person who lawfully possesses a gun comes to the door with a gun and police shoot him because they say he seems like a threat. No constitutional violation in the court's view. Right. And, and they're not even let go. And I think about this like on just a very simple level. 
I did construction for a long time. And one of the jobs I did over the summer was I helped this guy put in pools, right? Mm-hmm. Just walk this bridge with me for a second. So, sure. uh, you know, we would go to these people's houses and, you know, dig a hole, put up pools, maybe above ground pools or whatever. But <clears throat> if I went to the wrong house and dug a hole in somebody's backyard and put a pool in when they weren't there, I would get fired. My boss would be like, you idiot. You went to the wrong house. It's the wrong house, dum-dum. Exactly. You put a pool in. If I would have went into somebody else's house and put a closet in their basement, and then they came home and said, thanks for the closet, and I'm like, wait, what? And they're like, wrong house. Next door ordered the closet. They would be like, you don't, you're fired. You fired. But here they're like, hey, you went in the wrong house and shot somebody. Oh, accidents happen. You know, the first thing seems to be protection mode. I don't right. know if that's the u- because of the unions or what, but as soon as there is an yeah. incident like that, it's boom. Okay, now we got to get our story straight and we got to get everybody covered. And you guys right. shut your mouths and we'll do the talking for My you. My boss at the pool company wouldn't have been like, yeah, let's no. cover them. Hey, hey, you guys gave us the wrong number. That ain't what he's thinking. Right. Yeah. You know, it is. And we haven't talked about unions much, uh, but, but when you think about internal you know police response to their officers uh doing doing bad stuff there's a lot of those protections come from fierce union negotiation with cities and uh they set the standards for when officers can be questioned whether they're allowed to review body camera footage before they're questioned uh how soon how how quickly an investigation has to be completed it's crazy um, that they have that power as a as a union i mean i'm a pro labor union guy public sector unions you know can be a little bit more iffy especially police unions just because Mm -hmm. the police union seems to be so out of control and, and, and basically just have too much power. I mean, the things that you're describing, these are not things when someone says, we need a union, mm-hmm. it's not the kind of things they, they start saying, here's bullet points for what would be great about a union. What you're describing to me sounds like the person who's in charge of the, of the police department, who owns the police department, like it's a private entity and he's the yeah. CEO. Yeah, yeah. you think about union advocacy um, and organizing as trying to negotiate better terms with, the employer who has more power, and this is collective bargaining, joining together to negotiate better terms with your employer. And what my understanding is what tends to happen is that in those negotiations, the union um, or the city is willing to trade away higher salaries or, you know, what have you for these kinds of limits on transparency and accountability. Oh, so they make concessions during these negotiations and then those concessions are basically, okay, uh, yeah, well, you can pay our officers less um, as long as you're not allowed to uh, get us in trouble ever. I mean, that's a very dumbed down version, but that's kind of what, how this is working. Well, I'm not, as I said, I'm not in those negotiations, right. but that's my understanding wow. about what happens. Because think about it, it when these unions have these, uh, get these limits on transparency and accountability, we get very upset at the unions. But remember also that the cities are agreeing to these Right, terms. that's the right. thing. You ask yourself, well, wait, how can the union say you're not allowed to do this? I thought that the mayor was in charge, whoever's in, well, char- in charge. I think that's the good point that you make there is that it's almost, you almost don't even blame the union, right? In the sense that if you're going to give it to us, we'll ask for it. Well, yeah, right. It's the sure. city that who should be like, yo, no, 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 no. We're not doing any. Change. Right. So if, if I'm a cop and I'm running the union and I want to be the head of the police union in New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles, and I'm like, hey, we're going to get you some more money. And I got these laws to say if anything 
fucked up happens, you're good. Don't worry about it. Of course I'm going to ask for it. Why yeah, wouldn't okay. I? It's, it's the... It's the city's job and the state's job, I think, to say, yo, 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 We're not that, that. that ain't going. We're not doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, when you talk about how, you know, how to move forward, what to do, when, when I was saying, you know, changes on the state level and the local level are, are where it's at, I think that this is an, a great example. And it also means, you know, listeners, people who are interested in this issue, it's, you know, you can, you can, you can push for this. You can fight for this. Yeah, um, it's, I guess the question is who should we be who should council. we be yelling at? We should be yelling at the city council, city the mayor, council. the governor. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, and there are police chiefs also who share this. I mean, chiefs. I've been in. You know, I've heard chiefs say, "Boy, there are situations where we want to fire mm-hmm. ex officer and we can't because of the union rules." So, there, I mean, the the the, the union's not going to support <laughs> this, but. You know, there there are strong reasons to um, for people on on every side, for the city who doesn't want to keep paying out, you know, in these cases, for the chiefs who don't want the headache of the officer, uh, you know, who is doing all this bad stuff. There should be there should be, you know, at least interest to to try to change these rules. Right. Yeah. And I just wish that police departments in general would. At least come off as a, as attempting to hold themselves to a higher standard. You know, one of the dumb things I get hung up on is like after the the, the protest, every single police department that you see on the news, when a reporter's in there, mm-hmm. wherever they are, they're flying Blue Lives Matters flags out front. Mm-hmm. They've got Blue Lives Matter flags on their office walls. They put them on their uniforms, and it just seems redundant to me. Like obviously, I know that you think police lives matter, and obviously, I think that you are pro cop. You're a cop. I know that, but it. it how is there not someone who says, look, we already know that, and I know that maybe that's what you mean, Officer So-and-so, by wanting to wear that Blue Lives Matter flag, that you're, it's in solidarity with your brothers and sisters uh, who were fellow police officers. I get that. But why isn't there someone there who says, but it sends a different message to a lot of people, mm-hmm. and we should be above that? There's no one saying, hey, you know what, guys? Like, we have bosses, and our bosses could tell us things like that. Like, hey, you know what? You know, I understand why you want why you want to drive your new Ferrari to work, but, you know, your, your, your co-worker's making... Eight dollars an hour. So you know, maybe maybe you could drive you the pickup truck or something tomorrow. You know, things like that. Like, there's someone who says, "Hey, that's not a great look," but the police don't seem to have that. I think some police departments do, and there is some police leadership that that is that has that perspective as well. I mean, and there are there are police officials um, that are opposed to qualified immunity and think it's yeah. important to have accountability. There are those voices out there, but. Um, Again, I think that the, you know, the loudest voices tend to be the ones that are that are screaming the, you know, the nastiest thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing because it leads us into a whole different discussion that we don't have to get into. But, you know, I I think that, you know, the blue flag with the line through it, it's again because we're so polarized. Right. And so that blue flag comes off as combative. It does. And, I, you know, it's almost like if I see somebody, and I know it sounds crazy as a, you know, a a guy who served in a war, but if I see somebody flying an American flag on their car, I think automatically right-wing Trumper. Right. Right? Like, it's just, it's become a thing. Like, it is. And I know people say, no, 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 no. Yeah, it has. It shouldn't. But that, that... Blue Lives Matter flag uh, it feels combative, and we've somehow—I don't know when—you know, if 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 somebody when I was growing up had an American flag hanging off their house, I wouldn't automatically think I know their political affiliation. Right. 
Right. But with the blue lives, we do know. Right. And with the American flag, a lot of times, right? Let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And this is sort of why I, I get excited about things like the mental health response teams as an approach, because it actually seems like an area that gets past that polarization, an area that law enforcement can get behind because they don't want to be doing that work either. And, you know, I, I would love these conversations to be less polarized and love. uh, There are so many solutions, just incremental small steps that we should all be able to agree upon. And we're not anti-cop. We are. No one here is anti-cop. We right. never yeah. thought that defund police was a good thing to say, even if we might have agreed with what they claimed later on was the message. To do. Yeah, we right. never liked the, the language, and because we've never been <coughs> anti-cop, and we've never thought that we can police ourselves. No one here no. believes that. But it's so difficult to have a conversation where you criticize the police without a lot of people just hearing that and going, okay, you're anti-cop, that's it. It's that I believe that whether you are, you could be a person with the Constitution sticker on your window and a big blue Lives Matter flag on your car and hanging off your house. But if the cops come over to your house and beat your ass for no reason and break your nose, your reaction, I gotta think, is going to be, I'm gonna sue your ass. I'm gonna do something. Of course. When it happens to you, you're going to want accountability. And it's just common sense. And of course, we would all want accountability if it happens to us, which is why we should want accountability when it's happening to other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and my point in as, as in writing the book is really focusing on those questions. I say at the beginning, people reading this book can have different views about whether all cops are bad, whether cops are well, most cops are good, whether, you know, it's it how often police misconduct happens. You can have any different kinds of views about that. But all of us have seen videos in recent years showing proving without question that police sometimes violate people's rights. And the question is, when that happens, what should the consequence be? And and I would hope that even folks in law enforcement um, could agree that, and some do, of course, that, that there should be consequences. We should make these consequences meaningful because that benefits, that benefits other cops um, who don't want to have bad officers who sure. they're, you know, partnered with, working with. Well, don't they also think there's good, there's good cops out there who don't want that because now you make my job harder. Of course. Every Absolutely. time I go to a car now, this guy thinks I'm an asshole when I'm not, but now he's on edge, which puts me on edge because yeah. you guys pulled somebody out of a car last week downtown and beat the shit out of him for no reason. It's all over the news. So I got to pull this guy over for some sort of violation, but he's already agitated and freaked out and should be on it but now that puts me on edge and now the the whole job's harder yep agreed yeah it 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 shouldn't be in anybody's interest to have cops around who are violating the constitution left and right it seems like you're arguing logic in a logical world it's sometimes it's hard for me (laughs) to put my finger on it you know even when you talk about you know the second amendment which you said like you know, the Second Amendment, the, the people who argue for the Second Amendment so clearly, you could take it from my cold, dead hands, say they need to use it against an oppressive government, but then support SWAT teams breaking into your house. It's a fucking oppressive government. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, hey, everybody grab guns or your government might come. But we see people in Ferguson actually take up arms against an oppressive government, and we say, throw them on jail. Like, right. what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, I don't even understand what's happening. I'm such a dum dum. 
No, it is. You know who these people are, and you you can't help but think about it. Like I know you would hate it the most. You would really hate getting beat up by a cop. You would not. You would not like that. Joanna Schwartz, the book is called Shielded, and I do want to say that I think wherever you're coming from, whether you think most cops are good or you're really angry and you think that most cops should be done away with, I think that that you'll find this book interesting. I don't think that you're going to get offended by anything in this book. And I think anyone who's had these debates, plans on having these debates in the future at the Thanksgiving table or wherever it is when you want to talk about the police, read this book. Read Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, because... There's so many things in there that, like we started off with, you know, I'm qualified immunity. I threw that out a lot, you know, when, during those Thanksgiving discussions. Well, we got to do something about qualified immunity. Right. But th- and if someone were to really press me on it, say like, well, what is it exactly? They'd be like, well, do your research, dummy. You know right. what I mean? So I think like everybody, like a Facebook argument, research for yourself. Well, right. I'll tell you that. Oh, Jesus, why don't you research, buddy? <laughs> and this, we got to do away with this idea of if the, you know, if you don't have anything to hide, if you're not doing anything wrong, then it'll never happen to you. We, it's just yeah. not true. It's, demonstrably not true that you talk about just a few examples in your book and we know that there are so many more examples that have just happened recently that probably are happening today this week whatever so we got to we got in that mentality then we got to learn about what's actually causing these problems and then what we can do to fix those problems and i just thought your book was awesome hey i know you study Uh a lot of stuff and and when you're studying these types of things, you, you probably can get agitated, a little angry. You're, you're seeing all these things. We had Jason Flom on a couple of weeks ago, and we talked to him about all this stuff. And you can tell, like, it gets to you. If you keep reading about it and watching it and you know what's wrong, it gets to you. Do you ever just kick back and look around at UCLA? Because that may be the most beautiful campus I've ever stepped foot on in my life. Do you ever, like... All right, there's a lot of stuff that's fucked up, but this is it's a pretty good job, and the campus is beautiful. <laughs> I feel very, very, very fortunate yeah. for, for many things in my life, and uh, yes, but but reading about about this, studying these cases, uh, it's very emotionally taxing, right. and, and you know, I'm glad that you. I, I appreciate your kind words about the book um and you know and and, but i also take note of your fact that you know these stories are not easy to they're not to read but but we should read them exactly yeah Yeah. yeah. it's tough and each each time you you started off on a news story i was like all right you know uh, here we go and and you know and i watch a lot of true crime stuff and things like that on tv but there are certain things where when i feel people get it, it it is it's scary you think man this is my country i'd like to think that we're better than this and if i look the other way i can pretend like we are better than this but as i read these stories i know that something needs to be done about it and that's you know one of the things that we can do because we have this platform is to have you on to, to talk about it and where where can people find you well i i'm on uh so i have a web page joannaschwartz.net um, I, uh, I still tweet, <laughs> I'm still using that platform. Sure. Um, JC Schwartz prof, um, is my, uh, handle. Um, but you can find anything about me and about the book on, uh, Joanna Schwartz.net. All right. And I'm sorry I checked it out from the library, but I did buy two copies for family members because I felt <laughs> bad about getting it from the library. So <laughs> that's very kind. I, you know, I appreciate the idea is getting out there in, in no matter no matter how, and I'm a huge supporter of our uh, our nation's library. So however you okay. get the book and however you take it in, please do. If you do the audio book, I narrated it, so you can oh, that's uh, how have our producer to you. That's how he'll hear the book because he listens to books. That's his thing. He listens to them, so I'm sure he'll be listening to it soon. 
And we'll make him pay for it. Don't get it on Hoopla, dickhead. Give her some money. So Anna Schwartz, the book again is called Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Everyone should go buy it. Uh, you know, I guess you could get it at the library. Right. Give back my copy. But just go buy it, you know? Do that. Thank you for your time. We really appreciate this. Oh, anytime. I, I loved talking to you. Thank you so much. Right. Have a great day. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. And that is it. Thank you again so much to Joanna Schwartz for calling in today. Toxic and Problematic is brought to you by Mitra 9 Kratom. Visit mitra-9.com and use promo code PROBLEMATIC for 20% off your order. Thank you to Direct Computer Outlet in Mission, Kansas for making our Twitch stream possible. Music graciously provided by Kid Computer. Thanks. Talk to you soon. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.